following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. It is truly an honor to stand before you each week, knowing that you are as eager to hear from God as I am to preach his word The Church of Christ in every generation from the time of the early church until now has had to fight to proclaim and protect and preserve the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. Every generation of Christians has had to fight what John MacArthur calls the truth war. God has entrusted the church with the most powerful and precious weapon on earth, his word, which is truth. It isn't simply true, it is truth itself. And having been entrusted with the truth, the church is called to proclaim the truth, protect the truth, prize the truth, and preserve the truth. And it's no wonder why. The truth reveals who God is and who we are. It reveals our greatest problem and our only hope. The truth is what rescues us out of darkness. It's what sets us free. The spirit of truth convicts us and converts us by means of the truth. And it's the truth that the spirit uses to progressively sanctify all those who are saved by the truth. In our natural and unconverted state, we do everything we can, everything in our power to suppress the truth and exchange the truth for lies that make it easier for us to live in our sinful self-dependence. But when God opens our eyes by the truth and to the truth, We are given new hearts that love the truth and want to obey the truth. Pastors are to be men, men who do their absolute best to present themselves to God as approved and unashamed workmen who rightly handle the word of truth. When they proclaim the truth to the church whom God has appointed to be the pillar and buttress of the truth in a world of lies. This is why the devil hates the truth and why he works so hard to keep his subjects from being exposed to the truth. He knows what the truth is capable of. He knows its divine power and its potency and how it serves God's ultimate end of glorifying his name in this world. Satan would have the people of God neglect the truth and ignore the truth 
and to swerve from the truth and to take the truth for granted. He would have us compromise with error and falsehood in order to deter us and distract us from proclaiming and prizing and protecting and preserving the truth for the glory of God and the good of his people, both in this generation and in the generation to come. Spurgeon said the church on earth has, and until the second advent, must be the church militant, the church armed, the church warring, the church conquering. And how is this? It is in the very order of things that so it must be. Truth could not be truth in this world if it were not a warring thing. And we should at once suspect that it were not true if error were friends with it. The spotless purity of truth must always be at war with the blackness of heresy and lies. And friends, whenever we fail as divinely appointed stewards of the truth, the church always suffers. The church always suffers. And the effects of either abandoning the truth or compromising with error are far-reaching. It doesn't just affect us. Whenever we fail to proclaim the truth and prize the truth, protect the truth and preserve the truth, it affects the church both in this generation and in generations to come. Do we not see and do we not feel the effects of this today in our own lives? We have all, in one way or another, been impacted by the effects of false teaching and erroneous thinking about God and about man and about sin and about salvation and even about sanctification. And these negative impacts were not the result of being exposed to the truth of the word of God, but rather they were the result of someone's failure to understand the truth and thus explain the truth. Truth really does set people free. And error really does keep people in chains and in darkness. This week I had the privilege of meeting a professor of New Testament and Biblical Studies at a well-known seminary here in the States. For the past several years, he's administered what he called a brief test designed to measure the understanding of basic Christian doctrines to over a thousand freshmen entering an evangelical Christian college. He said that although over 90% of his students would profess to be Christians, many clearly do not understand the most fundamental truths of the Christian faith, biblical Christianity. Listen to his findings. 78% of these incoming students believe that all people are basically good. 65% are unable to identify a simple definition of the new birth in a multiple choice question. 54% think that faith in Christ is unnecessary for salvation. 54% acknowledge that Jesus forgives believers, but deny that he transforms believers. 42% believe that people go to heaven because of their own morality rather than because of Christ's substitutionary death. 32% do not know that Christianity affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. 
and 25% do not know that Christianity proclaims that Jesus was literally raised from the dead. And he pointed out that these poor test results were not the result of a rejection of Christianity by these students, but rather the result of a basic ignorance regarding the Christian faith. And if these are the test results of students that are going into ministry, how do you think the average American church member would score on such a test? It's alarming to think about, but sadly, it's not surprising. Just look across the landscape. Look across the landscape of our land. There's a famine in the land Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the truth of the words of God. Now, I'm in no way whatsoever claiming that we are a perfect church. But it both blesses and breaks my heart that some of you travel an hour through stretches of desert just to hear the word of God on Sundays. We love you and are thankful that you're here, but beloved, it should not be. It should not be. In cities of 15,000, 700,000, and 31,000, this is absolutely inexcusable. And I know it's not because of a shortage of churches in these cities, but what's going on today? There's a famine in the land, even here in this city. In his book, Famine in the Land, a passionate call for expository preaching, Steve Lawson diagnosed the problem so accurately. Listen to what he said. Sad to say, pressure to produce bottom line results has led many ministries to sacrifice the centrality of biblical preaching on the altar of man-centered pragmatism. A new way of doing church is emerging. In this radical paradigm shift, Exposition is being replaced with entertainment, preaching with performances, doctrine with drama, and theology with theatrics. The pulpit, once the focal point of the church, is now being overshadowed by a variety of church growth techniques, everything from trendy worship styles to glitzy presentations and vaudeville-like pageantries. In seeking to capture the upper hand in church growth, a new wave of pastors is reinventing and repackaging the gospel into a product to be sold to consumers. And he goes on and says, whatever reportedly works in one church is being franchised out to various markets abroad. As when gold was discovered in the foothills of California... So ministers are beating a path to the doorsteps of exploding churches and super-hyped conferences where the latest strike has been reported. Unfortunately, the newly panned gold often turns out to be fool's gold. Not all that glitters is actually gold. Friends, so much of the church is suffering today. It's anemic. It's weak And it's suffering from malnutrition. You know this. You see this. You've experienced this. Instead of a consistent diet of the bread from heaven, 
the solid food of sound doctrine, the sweet honey of the oracles of God, and the pure milk of the word, so many are being fed the candy of cultural relevance and popsicles of pragmatism. Of course, it's all sugar-coated with Christian language to make everyone think it's of God. But when you compare it to the substance of the truth, it's all processed junk food that tastes great at the moment, but then leaves the church feeling lethargic and weak and apathetic and slothful and powerless to face the onslaughts of Satan's army when they go back into the world. So many within the church are trying to convince themselves that they are rich with gold, but it's all fool's gold and worth less than a hill of beans. And of course, the longer this continues, it makes it so that people are not able to endure sound teaching when they hear it. They can't endure it. But that's the need of the hour. Indeed, of every hour. And it's been that way from the very beginning. God's people are created by the truth. They are liberated by the truth. Called into the fellowship of the Son of God by the truth. And they are saved by the truth. So for them to be sanctified and sustained by anything other than the proclamation of the truth is an absolute absurdity. May God raise up and give us men who labor to give us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So how do we get to where we need to be? How can the church recover and heal and be restored out of her sugar coma? The answer is simple. And it's addressed to men who stand up every week before the people of God. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's convenient and when it's not. Preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's the task. That's how to get the church back on track. That's how to sustain the church. That's how to progressively sanctify the church and to prepare the church to meet her bridegroom. Preach the word. Don't preach about the word. Preach the word. But it's not just the word and the parts of the word that seem culturally relevant at the moment. It's preaching what Paul the Apostle called the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God, the whole plan of God in the Greek. And to get down deeper and more specific than that, it's to preach Jesus Christ, to preach Christ, the Lord of glory. As Michael Reeves stated, the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea. It's not a system or a thing. It is not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. Beloved, what the church needs more than ever and what the church has always needed is to hear the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is, 
why he came, what he's worthy of, what he has accomplished, what he is accomplishing, what he will accomplish in the future, what he desires for his people, what pleases him, what honors him. We need to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. After all, the miracle of the new birth, the miracle of regeneration, comes as a result of God shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus said everyone who beholds him and believes in him will have eternal life. Beholding Christ results in life. Looking at him results in life. Furthermore, our glorification at the end of the road will come when we gaze upon the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John said, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So if the Christian journey begins with a saving glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if it ends with seeing him as he is, What makes us think that anything short of beholding Christ now will suffice for our progress in sanctification, our growth in holiness? That's why Paul said, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image by one degree of glory to another. So, The Bible teaches that regeneration, sanctification, and glorification all happen as a result of beholding the king in all his radiant beauty and magnificence. And that is precisely what happens when we turn our eyes and incline our hearts to the gospel of Matthew. I couldn't agree more with Charles Quarles, who stated that what the modern church needs is, quote, a good dose of the gospel of Matthew. He states that it's a great cure for doctrinal anemia. He wrote that this gospel presents the essential truths of the Christian faith in powerfully compelling and beautiful ways. Today, we begin a journey through the gospel of Matthew that will probably take us through the end of this year or perhaps into the beginning of next year. My approach will be to cover an entire chapter in one sermon. So after today's introduction, you can plan on 28 sermons in this series of studies that I've entitled King and Kingdom. King and Kingdom. That is, after all, what this first book of the New Testament is about. It's what the Gospel of Matthew confronts us with, the king and his kingdom. John presents Jesus as the son of God. Luke presents him as the son of man. Mark presents him as the servant of Yahweh. And Matthew presents him as the long-awaited shepherd king who rules and reigns over the kingdom of God. In turning to Matthew, we turn to the story of Jesus of Nazareth, who came from heaven, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a young virgin, who came to fulfill all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies. 
If we were to summarize the Old Testament, we could say promises made. If we were to summarize the New Testament, we could say promises kept. One of the main themes of Matthew is that of fulfillment. Fulfillment. Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament's hopes and longings. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament identifies 61 references to the Old Testament and how they relate to Jesus Christ. It is fulfilled. It is written. It is fulfilled. This took place to fulfill. Although Matthew never mentions his name or identifies himself as the author of this gospel, there are good reasons to believe that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, Matthew alludes to himself and what he's doing in this gospel narrative. After several parables, Jesus asked his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And that's exactly what Matthew does in this gospel. As a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven, he brings out of his treasure chest new treasures and old treasures. He puts out Old Testament treasures and he shows how they fulfill, how they are fulfilled in Jesus. So in a sense, when we come to the gospel of Matthew, we come to a jewelry store where Matthew, the jeweler, brings out treasure after treasure from the Old Testament and shows how every treasure points us to Jesus Christ. And we are not left disappointed because the treasure that he sets before us, it's our treasure. It belongs to us. We belong to Christ. And he belongs to us. He presents us with Christ he is our Lord, he is our shepherd, he is our savior, he is our Messiah, and he is our king. Matthew wrote his gospel mainly to Jewish people who would have been familiar with the Old Testament. He wanted his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, to follow and submit the entirety of their lives to Jesus of Nazareth. But as we will see, Jesus came not only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to bring salvation to the Gentiles. He came as a light to the nations. He came to spread the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. So while Matthew's gospel is intended to captivate the hearts and minds of Jews who are familiar with the Old Testament, the gospel of Matthew also drips with hope for us Gentiles. Matthew begins with an introduction where he introduces the Lord Jesus Christ, his identity, his birth into this world, and then it concludes with his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension back to heaven from where he came. And in between his introduction and his conclusion, the gospel of Matthew consists of five sections of rich teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ mixed with some accounts of his healings and his miracles and his interactions with people. These five teaching sections can be viewed as a manual on Christian discipleship. 
They really do include everything we need to know for life and godliness as followers of Jesus Christ. These five teaching sections include chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 10, the call and cost of discipleship, chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom, chapter 18, instructions for the church, and chapters 24 and 25, the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the age. And scattered throughout these 28 chapters of Matthew's gospel, the Spirit of God, through Matthew, presents Jesus Christ to us in terms of four categories, as we will see in the following 28 weeks. Number one, he is the new Moses. Number two, he is the new David. Number three, he is the new Abraham. And number four, he is the incarnate God, God in the flesh. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to take some time to introduce these four portraits of Christ that we will see throughout our journey in Matthew's gospel. Matthew presents him, as you will see in the coming weeks, as the new Moses, the new Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, listen to this word from God. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. He is this fulfillment of this prophet like Moses. He is like Moses in his infancy. Just as Pharaoh in Moses' day threatened, was threatened by Israel and he determined to kill all the male children, so Herod, in the days of Christ's infancy, upon hearing about the birth of the Messiah, orders all male children to be murdered. And so their lives, they, they parallel each other, they mirror each other in some regards, many regards. In, in Exodus 4.19, the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Matthew, 20, Matthew 2, verse 20, saying, Rise, take the child Jesus and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Dead. Obviously, this is a little bit after his infancy. Like Moses, Jesus came to save his people from slavery, from bondage. Moses was instrumental in bringing the people of God out of slavery to Pharaoh. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, a harsher slavery than Pharaoh ever was or ever brought to bear upon the people of God. Matthew 121, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from, away from in the Greek, away from their sins, out of their sins. 
He came to not only fulfill the law, but give us the final word. A new law, if you will. Matthew 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he gives them the Sermon on the Mount. And that's very similar to what we find in Moses, going up the mountain to get the law from God to deliver to the people. Moses went up to God. The Lord called him, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Israel, the house of Jacob, and tell these things to my people Israel. Jesus, as the true and better fulfillment of Moses, sits down on the mountain and gives the people of God his law, his word. He doesn't just bring up the old word. You have said, you have heard that it was said, X, Y, Z, but I say to you, and he does that six times in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He is the new lawgiver. He is like Moses in his fasting. We read in Exodus 34, 28, that Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we read of Jesus being led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He mirrors Moses. He is like Moses in his miracles. He is like Moses in feeding the people of God with bread from heaven. Moses fed bread and fed them bread and they died. But whoever eats of the bread of heaven that Jesus gives will live forever. He is like Moses in his transfiguration. Moses goes up the mountain, comes back down, shining because he's been in the presence of God. <clears throat> Jesus goes up the mount of transfiguration and he shines like the sun, brighter than the sun. Jesus is shining. Not because he has been in the presence of God, but because he is the glory of the Father. Moses came and he established the old covenant. God through him established the old covenant. Jesus came as the true and better Moses to establish and inaugurate the new covenant in his blood. As the servant of Yahweh, he will die for the sins of his people. And therefore, as the new Moses, we are called to submit to his words, to <coughs> repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and to trust in Jesus Christ. Matthew 17, verse 5, When Jesus was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So as God spoke to the people in the days of Moses from the mountain, from the cloud. So in Matthew 17, hundreds of years later, this voice, this same voice speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear him. Listen to him. He is this prophet that has come like Moses. Charles Quarles writes, Matthew shows that Jesus is the new Moses, our Savior, Redeemer, and Deliverer. He has led a new spiritual exodus and initiated the new covenant. 
He is the servant of the Lord who suffered the wrath of God against sin so that believers can be forgiven. We should respond to the new Moses by repenting of our sins and trusting him to deliver us from the punishment that our sins deserve and redeem us from the spiritual slavery that these sins imposed. He is the new Moses, as we will see. Secondly, he is the new David. The new David. He is the son of David. In fact, Matthew chapter 1 Verse 1 opens up in this regard, opens up like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is what the people of God, ever since David's day, were waiting for. The greater David, the descendant of David. And the promise came from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It was said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Jesus came on the scene and said, upon the confession that he is the Messiah, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. Jesus comes in fulfillment of this promise to David. So that we read about, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 22, God says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. You understand that this is hundreds of years after David And yet God is saying that in these latter days, he will send one shepherd and he will feed the people of God. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. His promises have come to pass. The son of David has come. The Lord Jesus Christ Over and over again in Matthew's gospel, he is referred to as the son of David. When the angel appeared to Joseph in the dream, he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. You read about in Matthew 9, 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David, son of David. They were expecting, longing for a son of David, and he came. Matthew 12, 23, and the people were all amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? This is Matthew's way of saying this is the son of David. He has come. God has kept his promises. And what's interesting is even this rich Jewish heritage that we are reading about, we come across a Gentile woman in Matthew 15, 22. And we read, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, son of David. 
You see, the son of David is not just restricted to the benefit and blessing of Israel. His kingdom and blessing extends even to Gentiles, even to people who were the enemies of the people of God in days of old, the Canaanites. And she's crying out for the mercy of the son of David. He came to fulfill the Davidic covenant. He will reign forever on God's throne. He will reign in righteousness and justice. He will reign over all peoples of the earth. His his peace will be over all of creation. He will be, like David, endowed with the Spirit of God. He will be the embodiment of Yahweh, God in the flesh. He will destroy the wicked by his command. He will be king and priest. He will mediate the new covenant. He will provide forgiveness through his sacrificial death. And he will lead lead God's people on a new exodus out of sin out of this present evil age and he will lead us into a new heavens and a new earth like Moses God had initially intended as we read to use Moses to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land and so Jesus like Moses brings us out of this world into a new world Through Moses, God promised Israel a land. The new Moses, the new David, comes on the scene and says, the meek will inherit, not this little piece of real estate in the Middle East. They will inherit the earth, the new heavens, and the new earth, given to the people of God through the new Moses, through the new David. The kingdom of heaven is mentioned over 50 times in the Gospel of Matthew. That's why I've entitled this series, King and Kingdom. In light of what we've seen in these things so far, Jesus being the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, we see this shining of God's kingdom throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And I want you to consider for a moment how this concept fits within this kingdom framework For example, the gospel, that's the message of the kingdom. The central message in the mouth of Jesus is clear. Matthew 4, 17, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The word disciples, that refers to the citizens of the kingdom. In Matthew 5 through 7, we think of it and we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins by telling us what the kingdom citizens look like. They are poor in spirit. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are the people of the kingdom. Discipleship. This refers to the demands of the kingdom. Anyone finding his life, Jesus says, will lose it. And if anyone losing his life for me, he will find it. Matthew 10, 39. Anyone losing his life because of me will find it. The word church refers to the outpost of the kingdom. Matthew is the only gospel writer that actually uses the word church. Ecclesia. One writer says, we're going to see that Jesus has designed his people under his rule to be a demonstration, a living picture of the kingdom of God at work. Do you want to see what people look like who live under the rule and reign of King Jesus? Look at the church, Matthew says. The word mission, the concept of mission, refers to the spread of the kingdom. 
Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And finally, demons. They are the enemies of the kingdom, as we'll see in Matthew's gospel. And hope refers to the coming of the kingdom. You see, Matthew presents us with the kingdom of God, the already but not yet kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God is here, but it is not yet consummated. It's among us. We are citizens of the kingdom, but we are still praying, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. You see, we live in the overlap of the ages. We live between the old and the new. The kingdom of God has been established. We are citizens of it, but we have not yet seen the fulfillment of everything promised regarding the kingdom. We are awaiting the consummation, awaiting the fulfillment of everything to come. And so on the one hand, Matthew teaches us that the kingdom is a present reality. And on the other hand, it teaches us also that the kingdom is a future realization. So Jesus came as the son of David, as the son of man. The words, the phrase son of man is used over 25 times in the gospel of Matthew. Over 25 times. And this obviously takes us back to a key Old Testament passage. Daniel chapter 7. Where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus' favorite title for himself is the son of man. He is this one who is given by the ancient of days the kingdom of God. And it's not just consisting of Jews. We read here that his kingdom consists of all peoples, people from all nations and languages who worship him. As the greater David, he is also the eschatological judge whom we will stand before and whom everyone will stand before. He is the judge. He ends the Sermon on the Mount by signifying that there will be people in that day who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, prophesy in your name, do many mighty deeds? He says, and I will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawless. He is the judge. Read Matthew chapter 7. Read Matthew 24, Matthew 25. He is the one judge. (coughs) before whom we all must stand. And therefore, as the greater David, we must submit to his kingly authority. Thirdly, as we will see in the Gospel of Matthew, he is not only the new Moses, bringing a new and more glorious exodus to us. He is the new David, but he is thirdly the new Abraham. Listen to this promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
and I will dishonor those whom you curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we go on to read in Genesis that this will come through Abraham's offspring. Abraham's offspring, universal blessing for all peoples of the earth and a land promise that is ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. But this will come through one of Abraham's descendants, one of his great-great-great-great-grandchildren, as Galatians 3.16 tells us. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul says it does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ, Paul says. One of the things we are going to see in Matthew, it's heartbreaking, but it's inescapable, is God's rejection of national Israel. He rejects this unrepentant people. We're going to see in chapter 24, the glory has departed. He has left the house desolate. The glory is gone. We see it in the cursing of the fig tree. May you never bear fruit again. You've rejected your Messiah. Therefore, the kingdom of God is given to a people producing its fruits. Who are these people? They are Jews and Gentiles. But as far as God dealing and working with this national people, it's done. The kingdom is given to a people producing its fruit. And so we see... For example, in Matthew chapter 2, a prophecy that was in the Old Testament speaking of Israel, and now it's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 2.15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And he's referring to Jesus. Out of Egypt I've called my son. A New Test- an Old Testament passage that clearly referred to Israel. Well, what Matthew's telling us there, there are people who say that Matthew used that verse out of context, that Matthew didn't realize what he was saying. Commentators, scholars that say that Matthew is misapplying the Old Testament. I find that hard to believe as all scripture is given by the God of the Bible through men. Men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke. Matthew takes that and says that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. And therefore, in him and through him, he creates a new Israel called the church. And it's not just comprised of Jews, it's comprised of Gentiles. And it's very interesting that even as God called Israel and set aside 12 tribes in the very beginning, when Jesus assembles his church, his people, his first initial followers, he calls out 12 disciples and he gives them authority over unclean spirits. Simon, Andrew, James, John, and so forth. The same way that Israel was established in the very beginning, the greater David comes on the scene, the true Israelite, the servant of Yahweh, comes, and when he establishes his kingdom, he begins with 12 men, like the 12 tribes of Israel, and through these men, he will build his 
church. He will lead us not just into a nice little piece of real estate in the Middle East. He will lead these people into the inheritance of the new earth. The whole world. These people are chosen by grace. Peter says, and he, Peter takes Old Testament language and says, you, church, and he's writing to Gentiles, people who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Peter takes Old Testament imagery and says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people for God's own possession. The church through Jesus Christ, is the new Israel, comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And so what we see in Matthew is the inclusion of Gentiles in God's redemptive plan. And they are a holy people. He says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we go later on to understand that, and even from Old Testament prophecies and promises that this new heart, this, this clean heart was created by God. I will create in you a clean heart, a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. Well, this all comes by this new David who establishes this new covenant with the people of God. And therefore, as the new David, as the new Abraham, he sends his people out into the world to do what? To bless the world with salvation. Remember, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's interesting that Peter, of all the words he can use in his first sermon in the, in, in, in the book of Acts, says to the people, God sent us to bless you by turning every one of you away from your sins. Through the church, God sends his worldwide blessing of salvation. And therefore, we are called to evangelize and be sent out. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And listen to this language. Go, therefore, even as Abraham was called to go, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that brings us to our last theme that we will see in and through the Gospel of Matthew. He is not only the new Moses. He is not only the new David. He is not only the new Abraham, but he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And it's interesting because this theme that opens up in chapter 1 is carried out all the way through the end of the Gospel of Matthew. God with us, Matthew 1, 23. Matthew 18, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. And in Matthew 28, go, I am with you, Emmanuel, to the end of the age. This theme of God being present with us in Jesus is scattered throughout Matthew. Matthew's gospel presents us with the deity of Jesus Christ. It's so foolish. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I'm amazed at biblical references to the deity of Christ. In the beginning, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're confronted with different apologetics and 
people say things like, well, there's never once where Jesus says, I am God. But again, we see the deity of Christ displayed not only in his words, in his relationship to the Father, but we also see the deity of Christ unfolded in his works, what he does. We see it in his supremacy, in his virgin birth. He is the Son of Man, which is a divine title. He is, as we'll see in Matthew, the personification of wisdom. Wisdom is justified by her works. We see him bear the title in the Gospel of Matthew of of Lord, which in the Old Testament was ascribed only to Yahweh. We see him as the Son of God, Emmanuel, who is God with us. I want you to see something really, really amazing. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. We're talking about Jesus being the incarnate God, the glory of God, as Hebrews 1 calls him, the radiance of the glory of God. Matthew chapter 23, this classic chapter on woe and warning. As Jesus pronounces these woes upon the Pharisees, they are hypocrites, they are blind guides, they are making it hard for people to enter the kingdom of God, they are full of greed and self-indulgence, and they are clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. It's interesting because the chapter ends with a lament. Full of woe, but it ends with lament. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 37, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And notice this. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. As we're going to see when we come across this chapter, This is exactly what Ezekiel foresaw. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory and beauty of God, leaving the temple, departing, so that what's written over the temple is what? Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. So check this out. Your house is left to you desolate. Not just referring to the nation, but the house, the temple. Because he's going to go on in the next chapter to to talk about the destruction of the house of God, the house of Yahweh, the temple in Jerusalem. Your house is left to you desolate. And notice how verse 39 begins. For, I tell you, or because, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In verse 38, your house is left desolate, empty. Why? Because I'm leaving. I'm abandoning the house. He is the glory of God. And now notice how chapter 24 begins. Jesus left the temple. And it's interesting because when you read the account in Ezekiel, the glory leaves the temple and it goes where? mountain and Jesus in the same way he was going away and he goes and he 
sits on the Mount of Olives, just like the prophecy of Ezekiel. Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate. Matthew says, Jesus left the temple. That's Matthew's way, clever, spirit-inspired way of saying Jesus was the glory of Israel. And he's leaving the temple. He's saying the kingdom will be given to another people, producing its fruits. So we'll see these things as we make our way. This is just a quick tour guide description of what we're about to see in the coming weeks. As Emmanuel, he is the glory. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. It's Jesus Christ. We will see him as God healing lepers. Something only God could do in the Old Testament. And we see him stretching out his hand. Very similar language to that of Moses. Moses stretched out his hand. The new Moses stretches out his hand and he heals lepers. He has, as God, authority to forgive sins. Matthew 9, verse 6. He has the power to still raging seas, calm waves, and calm storms. Matthew 8, 23 through 27, which is very, very similar to what you read in Psalm 89, where it says of Yahweh, you rule the raging seas and you still its waves. Now we see God in the flesh coming and stilling the raging sea. As God, he not only has power over nature and authority to forgive sin and power to heal, but he has the power to judge and determine men and women's destinies. He is the creator of the new people of God, creator of new hearts, he is Emmanuel, Yahweh in human flesh. Charles Quarrel says he performs the miracle of new creation, transforming his people from the inside out so that they become the people he desires. Those who experience the new creation never cease to be awed by his glory and greatness and offer him their sincerest adoration, worship, and praise. He is the new Moses. He is the new David. He is the new Abraham. And he is the incarnate God, as we will see in Matthew's gospel. Now, all of this begs the question, how do we respond to him? How does Matthew want us to respond to this glorious Messiah? How should you respond to Jesus? When you go out into this world, what's the response that God wants you to convey to your hearers? The response is to repent believe the gospel, and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of Matthew begins and ends with adoration and worship. Adoration and worship. Those are the bookends to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Going into the house, these wise men from the east, Gentiles, have you, saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. That's how Matthew opens up. Chapter 1, his identity as the son of David, as the son of Abraham, genealogy all the way down to Joseph and Mary, his birth, and as a child, these visitors come, these Gentiles come from the east, and they fall down and they worship him. That's how Matthew begins. Well, how does Matthew end? 
Listen to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. This is right before his ascension. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. They worshiped him. Just like the wise men at the beginning of his life worshiped him. So we see these wise disciples worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. What's Matthew's message to us? It's about the king and his kingdom and how you and I are called to worship this king as citizens of his kingdom. This is why we need the gospel of Matthew today. It confronts us with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It brings us face to face with the new Moses, the new David, the new Abraham, the incarnate creator. This is a gospel narrative. This is not a biography. The gospels are not biographies. John said it, that if, we were to, if he were to write everything Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough paper in the world to contain everything he said and did. These gospel writers were, by the help of the Spirit, selective in their material. And their intent and purpose is to get you and I, even thousands of years later, to worship and adore the same Savior. So what we are about to engage in is not just an academic exercise, an overview of Matthew's gospel. This is fuel for worship, for adoring the Savior. This is an eyewitness account to tell us who Jesus was and who Jesus still is because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's to tell us what he's done. It's to tell us what he is doing and what he will do and what we must do and what we must be in light of all of this. It's all about Christ, all about Christ. Chapter one, his identity and arrival. Chapter two, adoration and preservation. Chapter three, preparation and baptism. Chapter four, his temptation and the beginning of his ministry to proclaim the kingdom of God. Chapter five, the blessedness of his people and how to live righteously before him. All the way down to chapter 28, his resurrection and his commission to his disciples. It's all about Christ. And so I think it's fitting that we conclude with the words of Isaac Ambrose from his book, Looking Unto Jesus, published in 1658. He wrote that in the knowledge of Christ, there is an excellency above all other knowledge in the world. There is nothing more pleasing and comforting, more animating and enlivening, more ravishing and soul-contenting. Only Christ is the sun and center of all divine revealed truths. We can preach nothing else as the object of our faith, as the necessary element of your soul's salvation, which doth not some, of, some way or other either meet in Christ or refer to Christ only Christ is the whole of man's happiness, the sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the friend to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to support him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest pressures. Only Christ is that ladder between heaven and earth, the mediator between God and man, a mystery which angels of heaven desire to pry and peep and look into. Here is a blessed subject indeed who would not be glad to pry into it to be acquainted with it 
This is life eternal, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent, John 17, 3. Ambrose then throws out the invitation. Come then, let us look on this son of righteousness. We cannot receive harm but good by such a look. Indeed, by looking long on the natural sun, we may have our eyes dazzled and our faces blackened. But by looking unto Jesus Christ, we shall have our eyes clearer and our faces fairer. As Christ is more excellent than all the world, so this sight transcends all other sights. It is the epitome of a Christian's happiness, the quintessence of evangelical duties, looking unto Jesus. So this gospel writer, this scribe, trained in the kingdom of heaven will unpack all of these treasures old and new before us and it's intended for us to bring us to worship this same Christ in spirit and truth.